Welcome to The Sensualist, where we take on the deeper subjects of life, love, sex, and personal happiness. I'm your host, Freya Norden. Remember to like and subscribe. The face of monogamy is changing, and one thing is clear. The way a lot of people are doing it is not working. What can monogamous couples learn from the communication habits of polyamorous people? Is one better than the other? Leah Marshall is the founder and leader of the Esther Perel discussion group on Facebook, a community of over 13,000 members from across the globe who regularly discuss relationships, intimacy, sex, desire, and infidelity. I've included the links to Leah's blog and her Facebook group in the show notes. Stay tuned for the beginnings of an ongoing discussion on polyamory, monogamy, communication, and the ways that we can learn from each other in order to better and benefit our own relationships. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks, Freya. It's so great to be back with you. I feel like we recorded together before, and I always so enjoy our conversations and the directions they go. Oh, it's always great to speak to you. You have so much insight into, well, just everything relationships and (laughs) sexuality. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is something really specific, and it's what monogamous people or people who would like to be in happily monogamous relationships can take from the way that polyamorous people do their relationships and do their communication. Because I do think that the face of monogamy is sort of changing or the ideas around it, people are becoming more open. I think when it comes to communication, polyamorous people are a lot more direct about what it is that they're looking for, what it is they want and what it is they need. And they seem to be much more willing to negotiate how the relationship goes to make it work for them versus Mm -hmm. many monogamous people seem to have a lot of assumptions and like, this is just how relationships are. And the relationship escalator it's called. The relationship, actually, I'd love for you to go over what the relationship escalator actually is so that we understand it and, or sorry, listeners understand it. And also, um, you know, when you have this assumption of this is what, this is what it is, then you try to force yourself into this container and you may not fit into it or it may mm-hmm. not work best for you. So what I would like to do is maybe a person doesn't want to be polyamorous or doesn't want to have multiple partners, but they could upgrade their communication game. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, So the relationship escalator is a term that was coined by the author, Amy Guerin. And I think she spells her last name G-A-H-R-A-N. And her book references relationship escalators. So she should be easy to find online. And it's this tacit assumption that when we're dating, we connect, there's chemistry, we become exclusive. Maybe we try living together we get married, we move in together, we have kids, we entangle our finances without really talking about all of the steps along that escalator. (laughs) That causes a lot of problems, especially for people who, you know, we're not all 19 
meeting the first love of our life and then right. sort of molding ourselves to fit this escalator and to fit each other forever and ever. 100%. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, because I'm I identify as polyamorous, and one of the things I've noticed is that even within polyamory, there's such a wide variety of ways that people define it and practice it. Um, for some people, they're married um, and they have what's called a primary partner. Generally, that means they live together, they might have kids together, their finances are entangled. And for them, polyamorous means they have like a hall pass, you know, once or twice a year to have sex. Maybe it's in a different city or state than they live in. Uh, for other people, being polyamorous means they're involved like in the kink community and they explore kinks that their primary partner isn't interested in with other people, but they're really like emotionally monogamous with that primary partner. Um, whereas other people practice poly as a way to have like deep concurrent emotional and sexual connections with other people. So one of the things I've learned, because I definitely relate more with first and foremost, like that emotional intimacy being there, and then I'm interested in sexual intimacy, the idea of just diving right into sex, if the emotional piece isn't there, and the trust and safety isn't there, just is, has never been of interest to me. And so one of the things I've encountered in my polyamorous dating is I've needed to get very, very clear on what I'm interested in, what my boundaries are, what's okay, what's not okay, and then also get clear on questions to really dive into early on to see if we're a fit in terms of like our shared, you know, what we're looking to experience in a romantic connection. And, and that's really different from two people connecting, having an attraction, and then just deciding that, okay, well, now we're on the train. The train's going. Exactly. And it's escalating. I actually resonate with that as well. The emotional connection, maybe when I was younger and I didn't understand this kind of thing, it seemed like it was more sexual because I would, if I connected with somebody emotionally, then sexually I would be turned on. But for me, having multiple connections really doesn't have much to do with screwing them. It's mm -hmm. more, it's almost like multiple deep, deep loving friendships. And, and with some of them, there's sexual attraction. And some of them, it makes sense to act on that sexual attraction. And some of them, it doesn't. hundred percent. I thinking now of a, a non-sexual relationship I had that was so deeply emotionally fulfilling that I found my sex drive went down a lot. And I think it was because some of my most primary needs around connection were like, my buckets were overflowing in those areas. And then I also personally have other outlets for connecting with my sense of eroticism, one of which is pole dancing, one of which is just like, honestly talking about sex and intimacy in forums like the one that I lead, as well as others. So it was interesting for me to see kind of how that emotional connection impacted my sex drive. I remember just feeling like very, yeah, like just very fulfilled in that area, even though we weren't being sexual. Have you ever experienced that? Absolutely. I think yeah. that it has, I don't know this, but I'm guessing it has something to do with serotonin. And when mm -hmm. you're when you're perfectly content, yeah, there isn't, you're not in a seeking mode. Right. And when there's something missing and you're kind of looking, it does 
I think amp up a little bit of your dopamine mm. next to your sex drive and it, it becomes a bit, yeah, you're seeking something. Yeah. But going back to what you said earlier, I was having a really interesting discussion about a week ago in an online forum where I was talking about how the way that I practice polyamory and that's meaningful for me, I wouldn't want to have just like kind of a, a more sexual connection with someone. Deep emotional intimacy is really what most interests me. And there were some people and, and, you know, I'm open to dating what's called solo polyamorous. So people who don't have a primary partner, but identify as polyamorous. And that's how I identify. But I'm also open to dating people in primary relationships as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who felt very strongly that it's not realistic or kind of right to expect some of the things that I would be looking for if I were to date someone who's in a primary release relationship. And she was basically referring to what I call my polyamory boundaries. So number one, that if I'm, if I'm dating someone who's in a primary partnership, they're, they're able to show care and consideration towards my needs and feelings, even if their primary partner is triggered. And this person was saying like, that's like not kind of right or fair or realistic. And similarly, that they are able to have boundaries that are different from their primary partner. So let's say their primary partner has a specific boundary about his and my relationship, that he's able to have his own boundaries about our relationship that show care and consideration towards my feelings and needs as well as his primary partner. Curious to hear your thoughts on that. That's actually very interesting because I've run into something for the first time just recently. And I think that is one of the keys. And, and actually, I would love, like when we talk about this, I would love to get into specifics so that people, because when we get, when we're talking generalities, it's hard to know. I can, talking I can give you, I can give you a specific example. Yeah. Give me a specific so, example. Okay. So I'm dating a man. He has a girl, a girlfriend of about a year and a half. And he and I have our first solo date, meaning we had had a couple dates where all three of, or I don't know if you'd call them dates. We had a couple meetings, encounters where all three of us were together, connecting, getting to know each other. And then he and I had our first time where we were just the two of us. And we shared an act of sexual intimacy. And I think that the two of them hadn't really talked through, they hadn't like kind of gone down that road of what would happen if, you know, so-and-so and Leia were to be intimate. You know, they, they didn't like talk through that. I think in their heads, like it probably wasn't going to happen because it was during COVID and we weren't going to be in a private space, but <laughs> let's just say it happened anyway <laughs> in a public space. And his girlfriend got super triggered and basically said, or I think maybe the two of them decided together, we're going to take a two-week pause and kind of like sort this out among us and repair among us, and then we can bring Leia back into the mix. And I'm all for them repairing their relationship. What I'm not okay with is, to me, that essentially feels like I'm dating someone who's emotionally unavailable. Like he's very available, and then one moment that has he's like suddenly totally unavailable. And that doesn't feel like safe for me. That's not like a safe or enticing dynamic for me to be in. So what I would have needed would in that moment for him to say, 
I see that like to his girlfriend, I see that you're triggered. We're going to work through this. We're going to find something that works for both of us, but I can't cut off contact with Leia because Leia's communicated that when she's in conflict, it's really important for her to have communication. So, you know, we're going to put a pause on the physical intimacy until we can figure out what the boundaries are, but I'm not going to like cut off contact with her. Mm -hmm. So that would have been an example of like him being able to have his own boundaries and show care and consideration towards my feelings. Now, what's interesting is that's actually not the type of poly I think he has the capacity or the interest in doing. I think he's much more hierarchical and we had actually had conversations about this. Like this was, is why even if his girlfriend actually ended up being out of the picture, they broke up and he kind of came back to me. And I had said, I feel like our relationship philosophies in terms of how we practice polyamory are super different. He believes that first and foremost, protect the primary relationship. And if there's any threat outside, like another relationship that does that, you, you stop immediately, you repair the primary partnership, and then, you know, you can quote unquote, like let the other person back in. And that, again, that's like, <laughs> I've dated enough, you know, emotionally unavailable people that that's just not of interest to me. So that's, that would be like a specific example I have. What about you? So, well, that sounds more like somebody who's monogamous and who's having a side piece. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a different dynamic when, when you're monogamous and then you're just like, having a little bit of something extra, that something extra isn't fully, it's not important to you. It's not human. It's, it's like you're taking it, you're consuming it. And I'm saying it on purpose because, yeah. you know, she's not there for you to consider the fullness of who she is and, and what right. this relationship means to her. And what's interesting is I have a couple friends, I totally agree hundred percent. And that's why I exited that situation as much as I was like really interested in this person. But what's interesting is I have a couple married friends that I'm very close with that practice polyamory. And what's interesting is I learned that their emotional needs are very, very met through their marriage. And they're looking for at least I'll, one, of the, one of the couples I'm thinking of now. And so when she thinks about polyamory, it's much more about getting, you know, um, this is crude, but like the different flavor of ice cream at the ice cream yeah, shop. Yeah. So, she's, I don't think she's looking for like a deep, I mean, she's, she's a deep person. I think she enjoys emotional connection, but her, her bucket for emotional connection is probably like 90% full through her marriage. And what she's looking for is more of like that novelty, that new experience, that kind of like, yeah, that like titillation. So bottom line, it all forms of this are valid. And there are going to be people out there who, with the example I shared, would be interested in kind of like, oh, oh, you're free tonight. Oh, I'm free tonight. Let's connect up. Oh, your partner's triggered. She needs a couple of weeks. No worries. Like, let me know when you're good. Like that would totally work for someone. Absolutely. And then it would also like totally not work for other people like myself. So if somebody was wanting to maintain, let's just say maintain their monogamous relationship mm -hmm. and there are some breakdowns in communication around sex. You know, one of them is wanting either more sex or more variety of sex, or maybe even more relationships without going outside sexually. 
maybe they want more emotional connection and it's seen as, you know, micro cheating or, you know, all these different terms that they make up for any sort of connection that you have outside of your, your marriage. What can monogamous people do in terms of like, or I'm going to reword that. What's a perspective that they can take in terms of connecting with each other and having these open discussions? Because like what you just discussed now, it's very open. It's, it's, recognizing, well, these are my needs and this is what I need to feel important. This is what I need to feel cared about. And this is actually what I want in a relationship. And it's okay if you're not in alignment with that. It doesn't mean we have to fight. It just means that we can't provide each other what we really want. So, okay, maybe we're not going to do this. Yeah. How, How can that translate over into a monogamous relationship? I think it needs to start with self-awareness. I think half the battle is like people are dissatisfied, but they don't necessarily know like what they want. They just know like they don't want what they have. So I think the first step starts with that self-awareness, you know, whether it's exploring pleasure mapping with yourself, like what parts of your body do you enjoy being touched? How, you know, whether it's like exploring erotic blueprints, you know, are you more, I'm super energetic and also sensual. Other people are more like into kink or like overt sexual experiences, like really like kind of lurid visual images that are sexual. Whereas for me, that's like actually deactivating. So, you know, whether it's like exploring Jaya Ma's erotic blueprints, you know, whether it's doing something like Betty Martin's three minute game, where you're talking about where you're like literally voicing, this is how I want to be touched for three minutes. Mm -hmm. So the first step is that self-awareness piece. And then I think the second piece is curiosity, because you need to be curious about what would be meaningful for your partner and what your partner's boundaries are, as well as your own boundaries. That's kind of the place that I would start. I think curiosity is way bigger than anybody thinks it is. And I have this idea, and I believe that I actually wrote about it in your group, Mm. which I would love for you to tell us about your group as well. But it was like this, this monogamy thing, the way that we see monogamy, not monogamy itself, like it's fine as a choice, is like a sacred cow yeah. that people refuse to even question or get curious about Right. And, and say, how is the way that we're doing this container? How is it working for us? And is it even working for us the way that we're doing it? And I'm not saying, you know, open up your relationship and start having all kinds of other sexual and and emotional relationships. But what I am saying is the rules that you've set, the boundaries that you've set, and the way that you're expecting each other to live, is it serving you and helping you live your best life together as a couple? Is it bringing you closer or is it causing you to turn away from each other and stop being curious? Because you know what? A lot of relationships have zero curiosity about each other because they're too afraid to be curious because they're afraid of what they're going to find if they start asking questions of themselves and of each other. Yeah. Like you may be, I'm going to just one more sentence, but you may be like the best housemate and domestic partner ever. You know, we get along, we have amazing vacations. We have so much fun. We've got these kids financially. We're both stable and we have this great life. And yet I really just am not motivated to have sex with you. Like, I just don't want it. Uh, And I, can't see myself wanting it, but that ship is passed and I don't even have any motivation to change that. So it goes untalked about. Mm-hmm. 
instead of, hey, you know, I see one of us is, is really suffering, not having sex, and the other one is, is really happy with it. So um, what do you want to do about this? What are our options? Yeah, there's so much taboo, and then shame, and then secrecy and shutting down. Because there's this idea that if I don't desire you, then I don't love you, or I'm not committed to you. And I think that sexual desire and commitment are two separate subjects. Oh, 100%. And we've seen that time and time again, you can be so incredibly deeply committed to someone, but just have different, you know, sexual palettes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with that blueprint thing, mm-hmm. you could have a couple who are committed to each other completely. And I mean, they're committed. They're, we're going to die together. Yeah. And yet they may have completely different sexual blueprints, which means that they're not really sexually compatible. And, and it's always going to be like, oh, okay, you know, maybe we both have an orgasm or one of us does, but it, it's not compelling. So should they be forced to do it because they're together? And there's so much like heaviness around these conversations, which I think I'm just used to talking about it. So it doesn't feel like heavy. Let's say I was in a relationship. Well, we'll use the example I gave earlier with the person, um, because that actually did start out romantic and we were not sexually compatible. So, and he actually really struggled to talk about sex, but let's let's just use that as an example. It doesn't have to be a heavy conversation if you don't attach your self-worth to how one person enjoys or doesn't enjoy mm-hmm. the sexual interaction with you. And so I do think that like bringing curiosity, lack of judgment, lack of shaming, lack of personalization, meaning like taking it personally, if someone is not interested in performing an act of sex with you, I feel like we could really bring that to our conversations. I think so too. I think it could make the honesty that couples have with each other far deeper because there's not a lot of honesty. I found in many monogamous relationships, they're actually very dishonest because they're so afraid of saying something that may hurt the other person. And I don't think it has to hurt. Yeah. I, I don't think that vulnerability and truths and showing up as you are and seeing the other person as they are, I don't think it has to hurt. Maybe a little uncomfortable being like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be 10 years ago. Yeah. But you know, I kind of, I hoped that you would be wildly attracted to me for the rest of my life. It's not realistic. Right. And honestly, like I'm thinking about it now, let's say like I was dating someone and they're like, you know what? I love you as a human being, as a person. I love spending time with you. We have so much fun together, but I just don't enjoy the sex. I think it would just be like someone saying like, oh, I'm not enjoying the weather today to me. Like it doesn't, I don't know. It's just like, oh, okay. Well, they're, they're, you know, they like X and I like Y. Like that happens a lot in life, you know? Yeah. Well, it could, it could be, well, does that mean that we need to um, start putting some more effort into sex? Right. Or does it mean hmm, maybe that ship has sailed for us? That's okay. Right. Yeah. Like maybe there are some like Venn diagram overlap pieces that we haven't yet explored sexually that would be super enjoyable for both of us. And that's why like the dialogue and the self-awareness is so critical. So somebody that I, I was with, uh, I considered him my life partner. So I was with him for about eight years or so. And mm-hmm. we were very compatible in a lot of ways. And we weren't compatible domestically. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know if I'm, if I'm compatible with anybody domestically, but the, the, the living together situation caused so much stress that it, it really disintegrated our relationship. Now there are aspects of our friendship and, and our, our love for each other that completely overlap. And we still have, yeah. a rela- we still have a loving relationship, even though we're not romantic, even though we're not domestic where he's like, you know, he's one of my best friends. Right. And I thought he was phenomenal sexually. So there's a sexual overlap as well. Yeah. yeah. And so there were a lot of different overlaps and yet there were enough that meant that we were not destined to be his view of a monogamous couple who is in a romantic relationship. So we didn't do a good job negotiating mm. any of these things. And it became very messy. And I don't think it has to become messy. And I don't think it has to become painful if you can talk about it. The living piece is interesting because I choose to live alone. That's really my preference. Number one, I'm an introvert. So I really like recharge when I'm solo. Me too. Yeah. I have some passions and like purposes that are really important to me and having dedicated time every evening and every day to really put towards them is also really important. And certainly like I can do that when I'm around other people, but when I'm around other people, I really like to be present, to be honest. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think because my living space is so important to me, I've just made that choice. But I could see someone, you know, having an amazing emotional connection with someone else, great sex, like shared values. But if your living styles are different, one person likes to have people over, you know, essentially like host others, like their home to be their sanctuary. You know, one person's messier, the other person's like OCD clean. You know, there, there are some like real differences that can be sources of extreme, you know, one person kind of in a self-initiated way, like does the chores, the other person, like they're an afterthought, you know? So those are all challenging areas. What would you say was the area of incompatibility with you and your ex? I would say, you mean in the domestic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed more in the house, like for me, I'm a major introvert and I like my personal space to be my sanctuary. That's exactly like that. I was like, yeah. And he didn't notice things. So when he uh, was messy or, or would drop things or I don't know, spill something or whatever, he just wouldn't notice. And I would find it stressful. And he also didn't notice when I wanted to, so, you know, if I'm working on the computer and I was working on a project or if I was writing or something, or if I was talking to a friend, because I, I do a lot of talking with my fingers on the computer he would interrupt me. He would feel like I, if I was present, if I was somewhere around, then in his mind, I was available for him to just say things to. But for me, it felt like an interruption. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because again, like if I'm engaged, I like to be fully engaged. Yeah. So there was conflict there. And there was also a lot of conflict in terms of privacy. I work with a lot of people and like my clients share with me their most private things. Right. And my friendships are, they have, there's a lot of disclosure in my friendships. Like our, my, our conversations, like our chat conversations would be like our, our deepest, deepest things. And yeah, they're through chat and there's a record. And because of that, all of my devices, like, right. Don't look at them. <laughs> you are not allowed to look at my emails or my texts or, or, or yeah. things like that. Because again, these are private conversations. 
just because right. there's a record of them doesn't mean that they're for anybody else to read. So privacy was an issue for me. And so was autonomy because yeah. like we came from different generations. I, I think I'm maybe two, two generations younger. Mm-hmm. And in his world, because he was in a long-term marriage before me, mm. there was much more disclosure, I guess. And I was used to doing what I wanted because I had been single for a long time. If I wanted to have an impromptu lunch midday while he's at work with a buddy, like a platonic buddy, I wouldn't think about it. I would just be like, oh yeah, sure. I'll have lunch and go have lunch. And in his perception, it was a clandestine meeting. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of conflict with with that type of thing. So just the the compatibility in terms of like, well, how do we want to actually live our lives? I was much more independent. Yeah, I relate to all of that. And it's interesting because the topic of autonomy and privacy for sure is another one of those unspoken things that I think a lot of monogamous people don't talk about or negotiate. Whereas polyamorous, like privacy is one of the things I talk about very early on, especially if I'm exploring dating someone in a primary partnership, because some polyamorous want to share everything they do with their partners with their other partners. And for me, outside of what's required for ensuring, you know, safer sex or sexual health, and also like scheduling, like this is between you and me. And if you want to share something, like you need to specifically ask my consent to talk about, you know, that time we did X, Y, and Z in the shower. That was actually something I ran into with that initial example I shared about the guy and his girlfriend, because the girlfriend was understandably, you know, on edge about his and my connection and his way of allaying her concerns was to reveal everything that he and I were talking about, which was like very explicit and he never asked my consent. And again, it's kind of that monogamous mindset where, you know, my primary partner, obviously, even though he wasn't monogamous, but it, it's kind of like that hierarchy, like my, my primary partner kind of gets her needs met. And if they're in conflict with my secondary partner, then she gets her needs met and, you know, either the secondary partner will put up with it or, you know, she'll peace out. So privacy and autonomy for sure come up in monogamy and also in polyamory as something that's negotiated. Yeah, because if I'm saying something to you, it's meant for you. Mm -hmm. It's not meant for you and all the people who look in your phone. But I do think that um, some people who practice polyamory use their secondary relationship or, you know, quote unquote, side relationships as a way to provide fuel for their primary partnership. And again, some secondary partners would be completely cool with that and maybe even like titillated by it. Whereas myself, not cool and not interested in that. And that's because uh, I'm thinking anyway, I'm thinking that's because you're solo. And so the relationship is important to you. Now, something that works, I know for some people, and I'm not calling it polyamory, but uh, one of my very good friends is married. And one of his best friends, she is also married. They both have families that they're very dedicated to and they're lovers. And because they're in exactly the same situation, it's sort of like when I have time and they've been lovers for a very long time, like 15 years or something like that. And the sex is not the sex that they have at home. At home, um, my friend, he said, you know, it's like warm baked bread with butter. It's yeah. beautiful. It's loving. It's, yeah. it's delicious. It's nice. 
and it's my wife and I love her. Yeah. And with my affair partner, it's hot. It's filthy. Yeah. It's dirty. It's exciting. It, it's right. like, you know, we never know when we're going to get the chance to do it. So when it does happen, it, it's really titillating. And yeah. both of them are in the same position where it's like, oh, maybe it's going to work tonight. Maybe it's not. Or um, sometimes it'll be once a month. Sometimes it'll be like three times a week. Other times it'll be like six months before they can see each other. Yeah. And they're both cool with that. But they also both have their home life and their primary relationship. Yeah. And it is what it is. And for me, for example, for me to be in a relationship like that, I'd have to not care that much. You know, it'd have to be like just a friend that I'm sometimes having sex with. To me, that's not a deep, connected, loving, stable relationship because it's not stable. It's, yeah. you know, here's some crumbs when, you, when you're available or when I'm available. Right. And that's what essentially I was being offered by the example yeah. I shared. And it just, I mean, it wasn't even a question. And again, I had crazy, like off the charts chemistry with this guy and I really liked him, but it wasn't even like a question in my mind. Oh, that's what you're available to give. No, because I know, I know my erotic blueprint and I do need kind of like that fuel on the fire to, for my desire to like, stay high. Like if someone was gone for four five, six months, even if I at one point in time had crazy chemistry, it would be gone by six months mm -hmm. because there's no, I don't know. There's no like storyline. For me, I noticed because I'm seeing somebody who has um, another partner when I don't feel important, it's like a switch. Yeah. And by important, I don't mean, you know, jump through hoops and like do all these kinds of things. But if I don't feel that I'm important to him, my light goes off. Agreed. My desire light. It's just like, okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, but when I, mean, I do, yeah, when I feel considered, when I feel it's meaningful to him as well. Yeah. And like we're on the same page, then yeah, it's a, it's a raging fire. Nice. Oh, 100%. I feel like you and I are wired super similarly. Yeah. Now, I wanted to bring in a question that we were going to talk about in a different podcast, but I think yeah. we can do it right here. Okay. And in your group, a, yeah. a woman had posted a question and it was, why would a married person having an affair, if their sexual needs were not getting met in the marriage, why would they choose to stay in the marriage instead of leave the marriage for their affair partner? If they were sexually unsatisfied, why would they stay instead of leave and go off and, and start a new one with the affair partner? Because she was confused about this and she didn't understand why, like she wanted her partner to leave. And when she asked him, he said, it works for me. Yeah, right. I don't think that there's one cookie cutter answer. A couple of the answers that come to mind, you know, for people who are part of like religious communities where there's kind of conservatism around this idea of monogamy and the family, maybe they don't want to give up that religious community, their social circles that are part of the religious community. Maybe they're from families where there's a lot of judgment around like divorce maybe they like kind of like what you described like the the warm bread with hot butter or the hot bread with <laughs> <cold> butter <laughs> it's like all of the elements are there except the sexual piece and they don't want to disrupt what they've built whether they don't want to disrupt it because they love what they've built or they feel like it's going to be too much like work and time to dismantle that those are kind of the three that i would see as the most common what about you 
I actually went and asked a whole bunch of guys who are who are engaged in, in affairs and who have had affairs. And I asked them about this and, and also ones that are in sexless marriages. And the primary response was that there are a lot of pieces of the pie in a long-term monogamous relationship yeah. or a marriage, a lot of different pieces. There's the domestic situation, like the life that you've built together. Yeah. Like there's a lot of components to a life built together, not just romance and sex. Right. And sex is one piece of their pie. Right. And if the sex is missing, there's still enough yeah. there for them to be like, yeah, this is a good life. And this is a life that I'm willing to participate in, even if the sex isn't there. And they chose to get sex elsewhere rather than to just forego it all together. Yeah. Some people just forego it all together and they bitch about it. Yeah. <laughs> and they complain to everybody and they complain and they complain and they, and they let that one piece of the pie not having sex make them miserable and they don't appreciate the rest of the pie because they're like kind of fixated but they don't do anything about it other people are like oh okay I'm just gonna have an affair and, yeah. and they have an affair and I think the presupposition that just because you have love and sexual chemistry that you have to go up that relationship escalator yeah into the same thing now you're going to build it again because you have some sort of substance I think that's a erroneous presupposition that's right. Sometimes when people are like madly in love that they kind of get into automatically. So can we, yes. So can we talk about this idea of like letting someone go? Because this is also a phrase that's used quite a bit in our group. Like, why won't you just let me go? And can, it, what do you, what do you mean by that though? By let so, me go. So it's this idea that there's a strong romantic connection and the person is kind of putting all of their power in the hands of their partner to basically uphold what their own boundaries and needs are. So what I'm not explaining this well, but what I mean by it is when you have, yeah, when you have that crazy chemistry with someone, it can almost feel drug-like and it can feel like you don't have control over your own, <laughs> you know, your own destiny. And I always kind of like chuckle when someone says, why are you doing this? You should just let her go. No, like they should be aware of their needs. And if their needs are not being met or even being violated, they should let themselves go. You know, oh, it's you like the affair partner, the, the partner who's not getting their needs met, let them go. Is that what you mean? Well, it could even be in like in a monogamous relationship that's like kind of toxic or like a trauma bond. Yeah. Like or in the threads that discuss an affair, a lot of the comments will be either telling the affair partner to let the married person go, just let okay. him go. Or yeah, people telling the married person who's in the affair to let the affair partner, like just let her go. Well, if she's not happy, it is her role to say, I'm not happy. This isn't working for me. 100%. It is. And even though she has given away, I'm saying she, it could be anybody, yeah. right? But even though she is giving away her power, by being like, well, you know, I'm not happy because you're not leaving your wife. It's still her choice. It's not her choice how she feels. You know, sometimes when you fall in love, you can't help it. You can't help how you feel, but you can choose to leave it. If it's not working, you, show, for you. you can show up for yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and make decisions and have boundaries that are going to honor you. Like, no, you know, I'm not going to sit here and wait for a phone call all day, right. every day. And the crazy part is when a 
one of the participants in the relationship says it to the other participant in the relationship, just let me go, right? As if they have this- That's very passive. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. It's not how I would ever do relationships. Yeah, you're essentially putting yourself in this victim mode where you have no power. Uh -huh. And I, I just wanted to add to that. I don't think that sexual chemistry is not a good basis for building a life together. It may be why you meet and start to get to know each other, but just because you have like intense romantic feelings and intense sexual compatibility, that doesn't mean you're going to make a good monogamous domestic couple going up the relationship ladder forever and ever. It yeah. just means that you're good together in that way. And you need to look outside of that. You need to kind of let that initial new relationship passion die, which actually in affairs, I think that that can last a lot longer than in a normal escalator because you have all these obstacles. So all of those obstacles serve to keep it exciting and to kind of keep you on edge and keep you unfulfilled and keep you yearning and sort of in that mode of, oh my God, this is, God, I would, I would just be happy if we could finally move in together and then I could feel okay because I know he's mine, right? I feel like I'm such an anomaly. The idea of being involved with someone who's married, I just find super, it's a mix of like very stressful and unappealing at the same time. I think that's because you have very healthy boundaries and you know what feels good and you know what feels respectful to you. And a lot of people don't actually know what feels good. I totally hear you, but it's interesting because you, you know, you so often hear this idea of taboo and it's like the more something is taboo, like the more people want to do it. And I actually find at least with engaging in an affair, it's like the opposite. It's like, it's, it's so taboo. It's like, I have zero desire to, to go there. Actually, there's a funny story. I was at a work conference about a month ago and there was a guy, he's like, honestly, one of the most attractive people I've come across in a really long time. I was like describing him to a friend. I'm like, it's like, he's like a toothpaste model and like ritzy <laughs> ski instructor. And he could be in a Cialis commercial. Oh my God. Um, and we just, you know, like we were kind of chatting throughout the event and I would be at a cocktail reception. He'd always like be at my side popping over. And at the end of the conference on the final day, you know, he messaged me. He's like, I'm at the bar. I was already back in my hotel room, just like in bed, kind of relaxing. And so I'm like, I'll message you from my hotel room. So we were chatting a little bit and it went in a bit of a flirty and then like more than flirty direction. And he had had a wedding ring on the whole time. And I said to him, I'm like, listen, I'm polyamorous. So I don't get involved with people physically, unless there's the consent of everyone who would be impacted. <laughs> and his response was like, gotcha. But even in that moment with this like crazy, attractive, charming man, he had kind of like a Cary Grant quality to him, which is like my weakness. Even in his presence, like the idea of the physical intimacy, it was the opposite effect. It wasn't like more enticing because it was taboo when he was married. Right. It was like yeah. such a turnoff. I wa it wasn't even like a question in my mind. So I don't know. I'm just wired differently, I think. I get it. But I think that speaks to your maturity, like your emotional maturity. You don't need it to be naughty in order right. to get aroused. And some people, right. I right. think right. some people associate naughtiness or transgression or yeah. taboo or something wrong with exciting. 
And then oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Now we are coming to the end of our time. This conversation yeah. went by really, really quickly. Can you tell us about your group? Yeah. Also about what you offer. Cause I know you have these really wonderful programs that you run as well. So yeah. tell so- us a little bit about that. The group is the Stair Perel discussion group. We're on Facebook. We're a community of over 13,000 members from across the globe. Super engaged, super curious community. One of the things that sets us apart is there's no shaming. There's no judgment allowed at all. There's really like a zero tolerance policy. And so you can be very vulnerable and open. First of all, if you join, you'll see other people being super vulnerable and open. And I think that gives our newer members kind of a permission slip or like that sense of confidence. Yeah, that they can as well. And we talk about all topics from relationships and sex to infidelity to got dating, modern dating, eroticism, rekindling desire in long-term relationships. So we basically cover human connection. And in terms of the offerings, you know, we do Facebook lives sometimes with like really famous authors and thought leaders in the space, researchers, other times with just like group members who are doing the work in a really impressive way. And those are, if they're more explicit, we'll just keep them in the group. If they're appropriate for my YouTube channel and any colleagues who might potentially come across my YouTube channel, I'll put them on YouTube. So there's the interviews, and then we're doing a live event in Florida in March to celebrate our five-year group anniversary. So that will be a mix of like really fun socializing. We'll have, you know, for for um, kind of each of the different flavors, we'll have some poly polyamory-specific things. We'll have some kinks specific things. So we're kind of coming up with a program as we speak, but we expect just a very open-minded, sex-positive experience over two days in Florida at one of my favorite resorts in the Miami area. So you can join the Esther Perel discussion group. You can follow my YouTube channel. And those are the main ways to engage. Wonderful. I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes below. Great. Yeah. And any other resources that you wanted to, to share with us. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Freya. This was a great. lot of fun. And I hope to talk soon. Sounds great. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.